someone open up a window and vote yes for independency because today we are going all the way back to the Second Continental Congress for the Tony Award-winning musical turned film 1776. Here with me today are three self-proclaimed nerds of American revolutionary history, distinguished senior fellow at the Cato Institute, David Bowes. Hello. Cato Research Fellow, Paul Matsko. Hello. And for the first time on Pop and Lock, Vice President for Legal Affairs at the Goldwater Institute, Tim Sandifer. Hi. Why do you think John Adams was chosen as the protagonist for this story of all of the people that were present at this Continental Congress and all of the important figures that had done and would go on to do amazing things? So many different votes were cast that hinged on single decisions made by single people. What was it about John Adams and his quest to get the 13 colonies to sign on to independency that makes him the protagonist we want to follow? Is is there something about the character that we've created over time and our national memory of him that lends itself to this role? And uh, do you agree with uh, what the film says about him and what he was trying to do? Or do you want somebody else to be the lead? I think that John Adams was the protagonist for independence, and that's what the movie is about. So that makes sense. But I think it's a surprising choice in a lot of ways, because I don't think that John Adams is really the image of John Adams in American history books. Um, I think that we see, as John Adams said, actually in real life and in the movie, uh, they're going to tell the story that Ben Franklin smoked the ground and George Washington sprang up and they ran the revolution, although I think Jefferson was is, is also in our national mythology a part of that. To me, going through school, getting a history degree, John Adams was always sort of off to the side. And, you know, he did the Alien and Sedition Acts, and he was sort of a conservative. And so I thought he never got as good a press as Washington, Jefferson, and Franklin. So in that sense, it's an interesting choice. In the moment that the movie focuses on, it certainly makes sense. Yeah, well, I think John Adams would agree that he didn't get as good a press as as George Washington and Ben Franklin, too. Well, I, I, Adams was certainly a, a, a big protagonist in uh, in seeking independence and served on on tons of committees at the Continental Congress, a, a point that the David McCullough biography really brings out, how incredibly active he was. And of course, compared to people like Jefferson and Franklin, you know, he was much more active. Fran Jefferson was silent in Congress, really hated public speaking. He was he was a writer, not a speaker. And uh, Franklin, of course, was already an, an, an older man by that time and kind of played the, the sage, often uh, negotiating behind the scenes and things. So Adams becomes a really effective protagonist just because his personality was a lot more out there compared to his colleagues. Though it's, it's worth noting that Adams, this idea of him as the obstreperous, irascible, unpopular, that's him writing about himself after his term as president when he is still widely regarded as one of the worst early American presidents and was regarded so at the time because of the Alien Sedition Acts and so on that, that David mentioned. Um, at the time, at the Congress, he was well-respected. He did not have a reputation for being 
notably uh, unpleasant to work with. So it's interesting that the filmmakers are adopting Adam's own later view of himself. But he was he was actually perfectly well placed and had the reputation as someone who could get stuff done at the Congress. This does lend itself to a sort of mythologizing of the founding fathers that is interesting to me because in a sense the movie depicts them as very human men that it, it is not reverent uh in the sort of way that we might see them in in other ways but it is not also classically irreverent it is not inherently mocking them as people. It does put them in a position that shows them as wise or taking a lot of care to make the decisions that were going into such an important time in our history. So do you think that the film does a good job of really realistically depicting the power that these men exerted over the course of history or does it fall short? It, I, Beyond just the sort of factual nitpicking uh, inaccuracies of which there are many for a variety of of different reasons for dramatic and, you know, otherwise, I'm just curious about how you generally feel about this film because it was the thing they showed us in high school to be like, all right, well, if we're going to have a day off in history class, we're watching 1776. And in fact, it usually ended up being three days because this is such a long movie. <laughs> let, let me start out. Let me start the answer to that, because uh, I actually have kind of a personal story about this, because when I first saw the movie, like you, I saw it in high school and I was already big into the American Revolution by that time, really, really fascinated by it, by, particularly by Thomas Jefferson, who's always been a personal hero of mine. And I hated the movie. I hated it because it was it it struck me as irreverent. You say it's not it's not irreverent. It seemed that way to me. I mean, there are scenes there's constant sex jokes and potty jokes and the, the there's a scene where John Adams gets into a fight with another another delegate hitting each other with their sticks and somebody has to fire off a rifle in this in the Continental Congress to get them to stop fighting. It's ridiculous, you know, and and then Thomas Jefferson can't write the Declaration of Independence because he, you know, wants his wife and so the way they so they solve this problem is by having mrs jefferson who somehow in the movie is blonde the real mrs jefferson was not blonde show up and and once they spend the night together now jefferson is able to write the death i mean that stuff really bothered me now maybe i've mellowed in the past 15 or 20 years but when i look back at it i find that stuff amusing and cute and i i don't think anybody's supposed to take it seriously and it's it's fine but I, what I have come to like about it is that they're trying, perhaps excessively, but they're trying to show what you said, that these were actual people who, were, who had foibles and flaws as well as being great geniuses and having great principles, who were negotiating independence in the face of a large number of problems, not just the size of the British military that they were confronting, but the problems of slavery and internal fights between the colonies themselves and things. And there is a scene toward the end where Ben Franklin says to John Adams, what are we, demigods, where we are actually actual people trying to solve problems one at a time. And, you know, and that comes up right after the discussion of slavery, which is very fitting. So, I did think that it was irreverent. I didn't like it when I first saw it. And now I, I see a real charm to it um, that, that my, like I said, maybe I've mellowed over the years. There is this, uh, I like the idea that the, the primary hurdle to the declaration 
was that all these members of Congress were horny AF. I mean, they just, <laughs> you know, that's the big barrier. Uh, now, you know, Benjamin Franklin had a well-earned reputation for, um, you know, affairs with ladies in France and the U.S. Um, his his comments on the older women um, are, you know, they're still, you see them pop up in textbooks. So, I mean, he was a randy man, but the show plays up everywhere. They play up this idea. Everyone is constantly, where's my wife? Where's my wife? The, the well-endowed ladies in the FFV song by by uh, Richard Henry Lee. Um, so th- the movie plays up the kind of appetites of all the members of Congress. So you have, you know, they're they're all horny. They're uh, drunks. They're uh, just indulging in food. And like there's the the whole bit with the, the delegate who doesn't want to be pulled away from his his supper, um, which, again, goes to, I think, you know, Timothy's point about showing them as real people. Uh I will say that the the part of it that bothers me more, I mean, fine, you know, that that's all exaggerated. Uh, Hopkins was not a drunk. Um, uh, there was no necessary licentiousness in a number of the men who who are portrayed in here as you know wanting to see their wives. But I, I will say the part that's problematic is that that is the only role given to women in the movie, basically, right? Is to be the objects of the frustrated desire of their husbands. So you have all these like go- appearances of who I call um let's call her ghost Abigail Adams who she like c- communicates in this uh you know uh, spectral form to her husband to try to denote the fact that they were sending letters back and forth and we know now that they had this very close and really working relationship he would ask for advice on matters of policy and and politics from her um they were intellectual kind of equals. And so she's often referred to today as, as one of the founding mothers of America because of her role advising John Adams. But the movie dumbs her down. Like, for example, there's this whole early scene where he scolds her for, like, wanting pins instead of making saltpeter, which is based on something historically. There's some letters from Abigail, Abigail Adams where she writes um, in 1775 – Quote, not one pin is to be purchased for love nor money. And then a year later, she writes him and says, you inquire whether I'm making saltpeter. I have not yet attempted it, but after soap making, believe I shall make the experiment. So what the film writers did was they mashed the two together and turned it into this like, you know, dumb housewife kind of trope instead of what it really is, which is her commenting on a supply shortage. Their supply chain is messed up in 1775. And then a year later, she is experimenting with making gunpowder because it's useful for the uh, for the war effort. Like, this is not a silly woman. This is a, a sober intellectual peer that Adams, John Adams treated as such. And so there's a really, the, the layer of gender here uh, is really disappointing in how these uh, women are portrayed. I wonder how much of that reflects the state of knowledge at the time. This movie came out in 69, right? Somewhere around there. And, um, you know, a lot of historiography has been done between then and now. And I wonder if scholars have just paid a lot more attention to the role of women at that time since then. And so that if it were written now, it would have a different quality to it. I think that's right. And it also applies to Jefferson and Sally Hemings, which now that's you would have to talk about that if you remade this movie today. The fact Thomas Jefferson likely had relations and children with one of his enslaved with one of his black female slaves Although that that occurred after that would have been six or right. seven years after. Oh, yes, that occurs after. But um, it would feel weird to do this thing with his love story with his wife and not bring that up at some point as a film making, not not as an actual act of history. 
Um, so yeah, that you're right. There's a bunch of stuff the historiography has done since uh, the 1960s when this is written. I, I don't I don't really agree with this. This is a film about two months of moving toward independence and writing the Declaration of Independence. And the fact is, there were only, what was it, 50 people involved in that process. It's a secret process. There are no women in the room. Uh, there are a couple of helpers, like the secretary. So if you made a movie about Thomas Jefferson, then sure, that would be different. If you make a movie about John Adams, as people have done, Abigail is a big player. But in this movie, this is about the men, as it was, who decided to, to move to independence and ratify or, or read, edit, and confirm the Declaration of Independence. So I don't think it's unreasonable that that's who we see on screen. I don't think it's unreasonable because it is, as you said, it is a story about a specific set of time, David. I, I do think that. I wonder what it would be like if you made that film now, knowing that what went on behind the closed doors in the sessions did not exist in a vacuum, while the story might. Well, we, we kind of know the answer to that in a sense because we have the HBO John Adams miniseries, which, which portrays Abigail in a great... Now, of course, that is a movie about John Adams, like David was saying, compared to, to this. But I, I really like how that captures... And honestly, I like the way 1776 captures the, the relationship between John and, and Abigail, which is, of course, one of the great love stories in American history. And as you said, Abigail is such a truly outstanding, remarkable American woman. It, it is interesting, though, this discussion, because just this year, just a few months ago, the American Repertory Theater at Harvard University uh, staged this as a revival. And it's actually, I believe, off Broadway now or very soon and then going to be on a national tour. Uh, and they made slight sort of dramaturgical changes to the script, not by removing anything, but by including a few extra historical bits of text, including the letter between Abigail and John Adams, where she urges John to remember the ladies and emphasize that that specific point that uh, Paul was mentioning, as well as, I believe, portraying without dialogue, but but specifically calling out in the playbill, uh, the depiction of Robert Hemings and some of the people that were you know tied to Thomas Jefferson as a person. And it doesn't call attention to it or change the story in any way, but it does simply by including them in the depiction of it attempt to make you look at these discussions in a new light. And that really is the sort of aim of that production in general because they did uh, the you know very important and I think interesting dramatic choice to do something like what Hamilton did historically. So almost everyone in the cast is uh, female or non-binary or transgender. Many of them are actors of color. Um, and without changing any of the text or doing it to sort of mock these men, they represent them as the script does. Uh, it, it is simply on the audience to then reevaluate what this text and the text that the founding fathers created and crafted means when viewed through this different lens. Um, and to me, that was interesting because it made me start thinking about other depictions of 
these uh, people. Uh, and really, I, I always catch myself wanting to say depictions of these characters. And in a sense, that is what it is, is we have national memory and characters we have invented of who the founding fathers are. And when they are depicted on stage or screen, there is a blurring of the line, even with historical texts to ground it in reality between those two. So what do you make of the choices in 1776 versus other depictions of this period in while Hamilton doesn't necessarily tackle this select few years it takes on a period after that, but there is a lot of overlap in the characters that are represented in this period. The comparison to Hamilton is instructive because while Hamilton did the more, um, you know, had had uh, the casting decisions. I mean, there's 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 no black actors in 1776 in, in the in the movie version, the older version. Um, and of course, Hamilton went with a nearly all black and Latino cast. Um, the funny thing is, is that Hamilton is a much more conservative portrayal. I don't don't mean that necessarily in the political sense, but in the sense that. It's a traditional view of the founding fathers as these kind of men set up on a pedestal. Um, it haggy, um, has a hagiographical view of Alexander Hamilton himself as it, it ramps up his actual abolitionism, which was pretty minimal. Um, it, it turns him into you know into a hero. It's a it's based on Ron Chernow's biography. It's a very conservative take on the founding fathers. Whereas 1776 is far more radical in a number of ways. So like, um, you know, it's it's the 60s and into the early 70s when the movie comes out. They're concerned about the Vietnam War, so they put in a song where a soldier laments the cost of war. A common soldier, like history from below, that was really radical. That that was going on in kind of history departments, history from below in the 60s and 70s. Um, it put in that big uh, song and dance about um, rum, molasses, and slaves, which is a you know a very operatic banger of a piece. Um, which again, it's in the middle of the civil rights movement. Arguably, they play up the importance of slavery in the debates over the Declaration. Uh, it is there historically, but they they amp that up and make it a bigger deal. Again, far more radical. Whereas Hamilton, by comparison, only briefly mentions slavery in regards to Thomas Jefferson. When the reality is that many members of Congress, um, including including Dickinson in this piece and Rutledge and so on, and Hamilton himself, we we like, likely know now own slaves uh, or were involved in the slave trade in, in some regard. So um, it's funny because Hamilton, despite the colorblind casting, if you will, uh, is a far more conservative take on the founders, while 1776 is far more radical. Following on the, the, the fact that this was sort of created in the 60s, maybe the play started in 69 and then the film in 1972, um, it's, it's interesting to know that this was a time, I don't think we they do this this much anymore, but when Broadway plays would get presented at the White House, because, you know, that's the national stage. And they presented this at the White House, and Nixon did not want the uh, cool, cool, considerate men. He didn't like that. It's a, it's a sort of mocking of conservatives, although conservatives in a very different time and place, but still, it's a mocking of conservatives. And he pressured Jack Warner to take it out of the film, and the writer and director refused. But unfortunately, it appears, the director thought everything was locked down, and he went to France on vacation, 
in a time before email or even easy long-distance phone calls, and Jack Warner took it out. And Jack Warner also took out some of the salacious bits, the reference to whoring and so on. Um, And it wasn't until, I think, the 2002 director's cut that we got this song and and choreography back in there. Um, One of the other things there, because I'm always a student of ideology, is the whole song is about moving never to always to the right, never to the left. And of course, right and left are anachronistic in that sense. They didn't the terms right and left didn't start be, being used in our modern sense until the early 19th century, first in Europe. Well, I'll tell you guys, I can't compare 1776 to Hamilton because I've never seen Hamilton, because this is a Jeffersonian household. And I will not be out there watching some pro-Hamiltonian propaganda. But I will say that I think the, the, the song, the Triangle Trade song that you mentioned, Paul, is the best part of 1776. I like it a great deal because, first of all, it's in the movie, it's beautifully done. I mean, really very passionate. You said operatic. Um, the whole movie, I think, is operatic, but it, it this particular scene especially – and it's done with a great deal of passion and emphasis in a way that really, I think, articulates or tries to articulate different perspectives about the revolution as fairly as possible to try and get why people who we might call detractors from the American revolutionary uh, uh, movement uh, today, what they're trying to say. And I think that it's fair to that. And then it's fair to the to the players involved and says, you know, one thing at a time, you ha- you have to found the nation first and then address these questions later. Now, there are tidbits. You said hi- some historical inaccuracies. There are some big historical inaccuracies in this movie. I mean, Richard Henry, Henry Lee did not become governor of Virginia. Thomas Jefferson did not resolve to free his slaves, as he says in that scene. Things like that that are, are problematic. And that's why, it's, why you, the term operatic is accurate. But I really like the way that it, it fleshes out the the problem about slavery in 1776 that it really was just dawning on the civilized world that they were going to have to confront this this contradiction and and how to approach such a colossal problem such a colossal evil when you know we'd all loved to have just wiped it away but that's not going to happen so then what is your next best alternative i remember a political philosophy friend of mine said uh, something really stuck with me you are judged by your second best alternative because everybody's number one alternative is utopia and you're not going to get that so assuming you're not going to get utopia what's your second best option that's the question on which we all should be evaluated in this case it was Liberty, the Declaration of Independence, and and addressing the slavery problem with those premises in place. I agree. I mean, the molasses rum and slave song, just so good. Well, and, and again, to the radicalness of the moment, it explicitly talks or references uh, sexual assault of slaves, which was not. I mean, even in the, you know in the nineteenth century, Mary Chestnut, the famous Civil War diarist, it was like an open secret, but you didn't talk about it in public. And even here, a, a century after that. You know, um, in the 1960s and 70s, the openly in a movie musical talk about the fact that slave owners took sexual advantage of their slaves. Again, a very radical and accurate thing to talk about. I mean, that that would feel more uh, in keeping with our mores now in the 21st century than in the 60s and 70s. Um, and, and I'll also note, too, I mean, th- this point about northern hypocrisy on slavery 
that that is in that song is very well put. I mean, I I live down the street from an old cotton mill where southern slave-grown cotton would be shipped all the way up to Maine into this cotton mill and turned into fabric. And so there was large northern interests in the slave trade and in slave-based commerce. And there was um, – Thomas Jefferson is our source for this. Uh, we know that a section from the initial draft of the Declaration of Independence that was more explicit about slavery was not in a later draft. It was removed, and Jefferson said it was because of – uh, I think Georgia, South Carolina delegates, and he references in uh, some northern representatives as well. So it, that is based on a historical on a historical fact. So I, I agree. That was a, my my favorite song, though. I should say not because of the depth of the content, but just because it's a real banger of a song. Is the uh, old the old Lees of old Virginia, the FFV? Oh goodness! Which I do have a little tidbit to add, which is the fountain. That, that, that they're going around and around in that song is the fountain from Friends, the TV show. It's on the same, it's on like a Warner Studios back lot. And so they're like, hey, we still got this fountain. Let's put the Friends in front of it, you know, 30 years later or whatever, which cracks me up. Another song that we mentioned briefly, but I think to me is one of the most powerful uh, and, and stands out from the rest because of who sings it and its subject matter is uh, Mama Look Sharp, which is the finale to uh, Act One in the original stage musical, uh, the song The Courier Sings. The Courier, a role with very little dialogue. Uh, actually, I think no dialogue until that scene at the end of Act One because he simply comes in, slaps a, you know, a message onto the desk uh, and then leaves and everyone quiets until they hear what goes on. And it's it's a great moment of tension, but also a bit of comic relief uh, because he stands in contrast so directly to these men who are, you know, generally very moneyed and, uh, you know, educated and sort of devoted to philosophy and you know, academics and and sort of things like that. And he is a person who travels and is dirty and is sort of doing the the hard work that goes along with uh, making sure that those tasks can be accomplished. And when he sits down with uh, the other two figures in the chamber after the uh, hearings have sort of ended for the day, and he sings this song that really establishes the stakes for this discussion uh, that says what is what is really at risk. It is about the people that are dying. It is about the resources that are being lost and who is sort of on the other side of this conflict. And it, it made me wonder what the purpose within the story that sought beyond just – uh beyond just establishing the stakes is there a, a sort of point that it's trying to make by including it only once and saying while you're distracted with all of this you know bureaucracy and sort of procedural uh hemming and hawing when there are people out here dying is is it mocking it or is it saying all of this is to serve the purpose of the other thing. It, and it made me wonder, is there a way that we could tell the story of the revolution that really balances these two? Because you can't 
there are war movies. You know, you've got The Patriot, you've got Johnny Tremaine, you have all of these very famous stories, and then you have John Adams and 1776 and things about the people who are signing the documents. But rarely, I feel like, do you get stories that cross between the two and show them simultaneously in a fictional sense. So what do you make of the choice when people have to tell this story of choosing between one or the other? Is one more valuable than the other? Is there a way that you can marry the two into one? Uh, Is there a better depiction of this period that you think captures really what was going on? I think in two hours, it's difficult to do everything. And so all of the movies that you cited focus on some particular aspect. I think in this one, Despite the rollicking nature and often the humor involved, there is a continuing sense, not only that these are serious issues being discussed, the question of whether to be really, in their minds, the first country ever to declare itself a country and and declare independence, and also the problem of slavery in the American colonies, or maybe the American country, but but that we but we are aware there's a war going on out there. George Washington keeps reminding us of how bleak it is, and I think I love the scene at the end with um, everyone signing and the somber music. But remember, that's not triumphal music at the end. That's not like the 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 end of World War II when everybody's dancing in the streets because they know that they have just declared that they are going to fight a war against the greatest power in the world and that each of them is signing his own death warrant. And so even at the very end, we're told this is a great moment, this is a heroic moment, but it's the beginning, not the end. Yeah, I think uh, you mentioned uh, the the question of blending the stories of soldiers with the political leaders of the time. And uh, it's true that, well, there are, I was going to say there aren't many movies that do that, but there aren't really that many American Revolution movies at all, which is pretty unfortunate. Um, the, The one that I've seen that I think is best with regard to the soldiers' experience is a rather little known movie called April Morning is based on a novel by Howard Fast, who was a communist. And so you wouldn't necessarily expect the, that it would be a great depiction of the American Revolution, but actually it's superb. And it's, it's a little weird in that the idea is that the entire movie takes place in a single day. And the, the character um, is a, a young boy whose father dies. And, he's, it's, and, and it uses that parallel as a way of, of telling the story of the revolution of the Americans kind of growing up and, and throwing off the mother country and that sort of thing. And it really tells it's just about a soldier. And so it does a good job of telling that. But I, I don't know of many movies that have done a, a good job in that respect. The, I, I'm afraid I don't like The Patriot very much. The ultra-violent uh, elements of it just are... Although, you know, Bannister Tarleton really was a, a, the, the butcher. Uh, and, and the movie is based loosely on that. But I, I do find that problematic. Anybody who's interested, by the way, in the soldier's experience of the war really should check out the memoirs of Joseph Plum Martin. Uh, it goes under different 
titles. The version that I have is titled Private Yankee Doodle, but sometimes it's also published as, you know, the memoirs of revolutionary soldiers. And Joseph Plum Martin wrote a very readable, very enjoyable book in the 1830s when he was an old man about his experience during the revolution. He was at almost all of the major battles of the war. So it's really um, a, a fascinating look into the life of, of the people who were not, you know, in high office at the time. I think we also have a reminder, Landry, you were talking about the uh, kind of the bureaucratic. Um, there, there, there's a, a common complaint throughout the movie that Adams is trying to get something done and all these bureaucrats and nitpickers are in his way and they're just obsessed with silly committees over silly nonsense and, and so on. Uh, we have to remember, of course, that this movie is is telling us this story through the lens of its own time. Um and so in the 60s and 70s, you know, it's a moment where there's this sense of uh, that that history is moving along. You know, they have new left and new right radicals springing up saying that the old ways of doing things, the old ways of accomplishing politics are insufficient. So I think that probably informs that sense of frustration with the um, with the kind of nitpicky bureaucratic nature of what's, what's going on there. Uh, whether that's fair or not, I, I don't think so. I think that's uh, probably a misportrayal of what's actually going on in the Continental Congress. I mean, there's lots of nitty-gritty stuff they're doing, but I'm not sure that's a fair complaint. The other thing I'll note, too, this is just a small aside. That's a reminder that this movie is being written and the musical is being written in a, in a its own moment in time and looking through a certain lens. In one of Abigail uh, Adams's songs, she references um, what I think as historians we would call the tri-faith America um, concept. She talks about the sisterhood of the Turo Synagogue, uh, the Baptist Sewing Circle, the Holy Christian Sisters of St. Clair, so Catholics, Protestants, and Jews all working together for sake of the revolution, um, which was a very popular motif in the 1950s and 60s in the post-World War II era. era. It's when we, we kind of create this uh, idea of Judeo-Christian society, and it's invented contra-totalitarianism, contra-fascism, contra-communism. So this idea that what makes America different and special and better than, say, the Soviet Union or other countries is that we're religious and we're religiously diverse and that all these kind of primary faiths in America have some core similarity and it can have kind of a, a religious inoculating effect against godless communism. So because there's no way that Abigail Adams does not evoke uh, what Will Herberg, the sociologist in 1955, uh, calls Protestant Catholic Jew. She's not doing that. But the the filmmakers have her do that because, again, that's something that was part of the political project of the 1950s and 60s. So they're reading it into the story, even in just a small way uh, in the story of 1776. Yeah, it's it's true that uh, the, the John Adams who signed the Alien Act was not exactly a diversity <laughs> is our strength kind of guy. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm reminded, actually, of a, a, a the art critic um, Robert Hughes was talking about the Statue of Liberty. And he said, uh, her face says, watch it, Buster, not welcome stranger. And that that difference uh, I, is what you're talking about there, that we've kind of moved in a direction which, you know, has, I think, is obviously has great merit that uh, well, more of a welcome stranger diversity of our strength attitude than the founding fathers had in 1776. They drew from what we would, would be accurately called a diverse background of political philosophical ideas. These guys were familiar with uh, the Greeks and the Romans and the writings of the French and and uh, and so forth. 
which, you know, nowadays that gets all put into a single bucket of white culture. But the reality is that that's actually radically diverse in time and, uh, and, and ethnicity and its origins. Founding fathers talked about these thinkers as if they were, you know, friends of theirs. They knew them very deeply and they all influenced their views of, a, of an empire of liberty that was to come after, after independence. So it, we should not downplay the degree to which diversity did play into what they were doing. But they were much more concerned with what we would call Republican virtue and individual liberty than with considerations of that sort that that I think you see in Hollywood today. And I, I suppose I'll, I'll add to that, like the, the movie does a very good job um, showing the diversity of opinion among the founding fathers. I think sometimes when it's talked about uh, – in in like high school history classes that there are the founding fathers who are pro-independence and then there's loyalists who are the evil bad guys who are anti-independence and that's about as complicated as the story gets but in here it shows that within that it's a much more um fluid situation that being for independence open questions like well at what point and to and how do you get to independence are you willing to entertain offensive military action uh, you know, th- there's a whole range of views represented in the film, which I think is is useful to uh, uh, Americans who might have had a, a pretty simplistic view of, of that. And and in and in that respect, it's far superior to the HBO John Adams series. One thing that the John Adams series uh, on HBO, I think, is the best movie ever made about the American Revolution. But I have uh, real problems with it. One of them being we are never given an explanation of why John Adams wants independence in that movie. The, the, the one moment when he has the opportunity to stand up in front of people and say, why does he want independence? He gives a speech where the line is, "Give I want a country. Within my lifetime, let me have a country, is what he says. Well, any fascist wants a country of his own. I mean, that's the, a country of our own is the favorite slogan of fascists. What John Adams wanted was not a country of his own. What he wanted was, as as the other founders wanted, a country founded on principles of individual liberty uh, that would respect individual rights. And 1776 does a far superior job of discussing those issues by talking about things like the way the British burned our towns, destroyed the lives of our people, and the other things that are mentioned in the Declaration. Speaking of of people having to come to the support for independence and why, let me mention one of my pet peeves in in the movie, which is the portrayal of James Wilson. Because in the first place, he wasn't a judge at the time. We remember him actually as Judge Wilson, but he had not been a judge by 1776. But also he was not undecided and he was not simply in the shadow of John Dickinson. He was pro-independence. What they did there is kind of merge another Pennsylvania delegate who was undecided into James Wilson. But he's called James Wilson, whose name is much better known than the other delegate, even though not as well known as uh, the the really well-known founders. And so I just always feel sorry for James Wilson and his descendants when I see him portrayed as such a dishrag and a person who prefers to be a non-entity. This was, after all, a person who was named to the Supreme Court of the new nation. 
I could not agree more. James Wilson was one of the most important of America's founding fathers, and it's really a disgrace how much he is ignored. He was a signer of the Declaration and of the Constitution, and he was one of the greatest legal thinkers in early America. He wrote a series of lectures on law, which you can get through a Liberty Fund nowadays, which are just brilliant analyses of well, not just like legal issues in general, but of the constitutional and political structure of the United States. And second only to James Madison, and maybe in some respects superior to James Madison in his understanding of the nature of the constitutional union. So it's really a, a, a shame that Wilson doesn't get the kind of attention he deserves. He should be at the top level of our hierarchy of founders alongside James Madison. I'll also do a shout out to uh, John Dickinson, who they kind of do dirty in the portrayal as well. Like Dickinson, I mean, they they reference this at the end. He does fight bravely in the Revolutionary Army. Um, he's not he's never particularly trusted. Uh, he gets other people get promoted over him because of his uh, refusal to sign um, and and to you know. But he here here's the thing: the reason why he was opposed. Uh, at that point was not that he was against independence per se, but he was against offensive military operations at the time. He, he comes from a Quaker background. And um, so he, he comes from a pacifist route, which makes his service in the Revolutionary Army interesting. But he's a man of conscience. And one of the, I mean, this is part of what you do in a movie is you need good guys and bad guys. I'm not sure in the Declaration of Independence debates that any, there are few figures who I think of as being bad guys in the sense that they're insincere that they are um, just there for personal interest or, you know, he, here the bad guys are all kind of effete a little bit. They're punctilious. They're not down to earth. Men of the people you have a beer with like Franklin or Adams. And that's just, these, these are men generally of the same social class. Uh, they, they, these, there's not some big social divide between um, the pro-independent side versus the not independence now side, which I think is, would be the more accurate way to portray them. I think actually the movie does do a good job, though, of allowing Dickinson to sharply debate with Adams over a real issue. We're part of the freest country in the world, the freest empire in the world. Why would we want to give that up? Um, and that's, that is a real argument, which it's tough for modern viewers to recognize because we all know the the forward progress of the world was that America should be independent. And that so so that big debate, I think they do have a, a real clash. And then obviously in the slavery debate, they they do let Rutledge make a case for why he's not willing to subordinate his peculiar institution, which I think is actually another anachronistic phrase that probably had not been used by 1776. Yeah, if Dickinson had been, you know, a, a bad guy, Thomas Jefferson would not have been friends with him. And uh, late in his life, Jefferson spoke very highly of Dickinson. And so it it, it was not as severe a, a, a clash as is portrayed either in that or in the in the HBO series, which is, I, you know, both of them, I think, are fair, are kind of fair to Dickinson in that they try to show that he's coming from a good place. And it's not just the Quaker background. It's also, you know, this was a century after the uh, English Civil Wars had, you know, the, the Glorious Revolution and before that, the English Civil War. And so Eng English political society had been through a great civil war catastrophe 
where issues of natural law and and individual freedom had already been brooded about, and those had had failed. They were regarded as, I mean, not, not the Glorious Revolution, but the, the Civil War was regarded as a, as a great catastrophe, as, a, as proof that the people could not govern themselves without kings. And now here you are, you know, in 130 or so years later, trying to do it all over again. And it's natural that at least somebody in the room would be saying, well, what about who's going to be our Cromwell? Or, you know, and it's natural that people would be worried about that. And so I think they do a fairly good job of trying to to explain that. But then you get into, I think, a depth that the the story it could get distracting, so they don't do too much of that. We're asking a lot of them. Well, in Dickens, yeah. I mean, he, to we're, your we're point, we're nerds. We're, yeah, we're American he, Revolution nerds, of course. That. <laughs> well, and he had spent three years over in Britain uh, a decade or so earlier, which means we're only a decade or two while he's over there from the Jacobite. Uh, uprisings in the 1740s, which was all about natural law and the, the, the rhetoric. So he's alarmed. He's like, I've seen the harm that comes from people overturning useful institutions on a whim and quickly resorting to violence. Um, so yeah, it, it's it's you have to situate them in their place and time. Yeah, the whole exercise is one of taking what are in their at their core radical political ideas but then making them work as a matter of practical politics through practical statesmanship, which we, I think you said earlier, it can seem like a bunch of, of piddling details and slow, obnoxious uh, 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 committee meetings and, and so forth. And having that patience for that, it can be very difficult. But what the revolution shows, what the what the experience at Philadelphia shows, is that that's the only way to make a lasting change, is those kinds of step-by-step, baby-step transformations to, to get, as uh, Jeff, I think Adams later said, get 13 clocks to strike at the same time, which was a much more difficult thing to do in the 1770s than with our clocks today. Nowadays, everybody's clocks goes off at the same time. Every time there's an amber alert, everybody's cell phone in the room goes off simultaneously. That was not the case in Philadelphia in 1776. Though we do open with a, a clock, or not, I mean, we have the Liberty Bell at the opening, which is, is always anachronistic because, you know, the Liberty Bell was not uh, a, a big, the symbol it is now of the American independence until the 1830s. And basically, uh, abolitionists in the 1830s say, oh, we we found this bell. It's got a crack in, in it. That's a good story. We can tell the story that it cracked because of the incompleteness of the declaration. It didn't secure – the revolution didn't secure freedom for all. And so they created this story a generation later that made the Liberty Bell central to the, to the, to the 1776 story when it's not really. It's just one of the bells that ring. Well, we're on the point of uh, of symbolism. One of the things that I find charming about the about 1776 is the discussion over whether it should be the eagle, the dove, or the turkey that is the national symbol. <laughs> and you know, Franklin wants it to be the turkey. Now, this is based loosely on a, a real exchange that happened, kinda. But um, Franklin wants it to be the turkey because the turkey is a brave bird that will attack an entire regiment by himself. And also is a a productive bird. It's the it's you know it's it, it's a meal that the pilgrims lived off of and so forth. And it's native to America. And uh, Adams wants it to be the eagle. And Franklin points out that the eagle is a, a scavenger and a coward. And 
every time I see an eagle, I kind of think about that. I kind of think, you know, <laughs> the turkey is not a beautiful animal. I, I'll, I'll give you that. And not a particularly smart animal. I'll give you that. But, you know, Franklin makes a good case, I think, that it should be the turkey. If anything, it is delicious, though. And if there's one thing I want us to be, it's delicious. <laughs> <laughs> uh, apparently, that whole li- that little bit, that little discussion over what's, what should the bird be, which which is fun, uh, was based on some graphic designer came up with a movie poster showing like an eagle breaking out of an egg. And they liked the poster so much for the musical that when they made the movie, they added that in. That's, oh that's what I read. Um, that's so fantastic. That scene is because of a poster showing an egg breaking out, uh, which is just well, kind of fun, you know. Early on, Jefferson wanted the symbol. They 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 came up with different ideas for the symbol of the, the national seal and so forth. And oh, Jefferson wanted to use the the slogan "Rebellion to Tyrants is Obedience to God," which was rejected. So he used it as his own personal motto after that. But um, he wanted a mosaic symbol, and Moses was really one of the central motifs of the designs and the and the thinking about the the revolution at the time. Now you were talking about the Judeo Christian thing being sort of a, an artifact of the of the mid twentieth century, and that that is sort of is true, but it is also true that this the when in casting about for symbolic representations or myths to appeal to to kind of articulate their cause the revolutionary founders very frequently went back to Moses as their symbol who was leading the people from bondage into a new land and that that representation really was important to them yeah we get into the complicated territory of religion and the founding like John Witherspoon is in here He's a, a you know Presbyterian clergyman who would be recognizably we, we get into the idea that basically every generation of Americans uh, of religious Americans goes back and mines that moment for evidence that that their version of religion is was vitally important to the revolution and to the founding of America to varying degrees of accuracy. So like like for example, I, back when I was in high school, grew up in a very conservative circle, we would go on I went on a high school tour of the U.S. Capitol uh, with a guy named David Barton, who's a Christian nationalist. And he would go around and show all the like all the the mosaic lawgiver motifs that are all over the place in the Supreme Court chambers and in the Capitol building. You see Moses and the tablets and be like, ha, see, the founding fathers were evangelical Christians just like us. And so th- every generation does that. But there is a kernel there. There, there really were deeply religious founders. There were less deeply religious founders like Thomas Jefferson, you know, famously clipping out sections of the Bible that he didn't approve of, though very religious in his own way. I guess we'd say we'd say spiritual, but not religious. Um, but it was uh, the difference between the kind of like civic religion, the, the importance of religion as a store of vir- civic virtue for the people, as opposed to uh, kind of the ideas of religion that uh, of the mid 20th century, the Judeo-Christian Protestant Catholic Jew consensus or that of Judeo-Christian rhetoric today, which tends to be very kind of new Christian right uh, inflected, more um, conservative and evangelical in orientation. And and you were talking about how the how independence, uh, one of the reasons why you might be afraid of independence in 1776 about what, what does the future hold was sort of there's there's problems against the British, but there's also mutual squabbling among the colonies and everything. There's also this question of religious diversity. We we're talking about diversity earlier. Diversity 
could be a weakness, right? If you're in, if you're there in summer of 1776, you're thinking, well, what about we got Catholics in Maryland, we got the Quakers in in Pennsylvania, we got the Puritans in Boston. How are these people going to all get along on the North American continent? It and so they now they all emphasize what they have in common, but you know they also have a lot again that that they disagree about, and the Quakers particularly were a problem, I think, for a lot of the American founders. George Washington, for instance, wrote a letter to a Quaker congregation where he said, uh, I don't remember the exact words, but something to the effect that Quakers, except for their refusal to fight for their country, are good Americans. And, I mean, that's really <laughs> yeah. quite startling. And 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 Madison said something similar to that. that uh, so this was a real these were real problems how to handle diversity in a free society without having that diversity rise to such a level where it destroys the the institutions on which individual freedom depends well and there's the there's a big debate i mean after not in the declaration but the debates over the constitutional ratification on the state level and then the debates over the state constitutions as well there's a whole series of debates over the next generation really um, over whether or not to put religious test clauses in the con- various constitutions. In other words, should you have to believe in a higher being in order to be qualified for office or even to vote? And if so, which higher being? So there's a whole series of religious test clause debates that mostly go down to defeat because of changing kind of cultural norms around religion late 18th century. Thomas Jefferson's a great example. Thomas Jefferson creates a kind of almost a, an ideological alliance Despite being a free thinker in religious terms, him, he and Baptists like John Leland and Isaac Bacchus, uh, this, this occasions uh, the famous giant wheel of cheese that someone gives to him during his presidential campaign, his relationship with these with this community. But basically, you have these evangelicals and free thinkers uniting around the idea that you shouldn't have religious test clauses, that you should have uh, kind of essentially we shouldn't we should codify we should avoid codifying religious particular particularism i'm not saying that right particularism uh and religious establishment be anti-establishmentarian or disestablishment um so religious pluralism is a is an ongoing debate in the 1770s and 1780s and, and this is happening remember 1776 was also the the year that the virginia declaration of rights came out only a month before the declaration of independence and on the committee to write that uh that uh, declaration of rights was george mason and James Madison. Madison was, what, 25 or something. He's this young yeah, he's college young, yeah. intern, basically, <laughs> serving on this committee with George Mason, one of the most respected politicians in America. And Mason had written in his draft that religious toleration is, the, is every, everybody has a, uh, should have religious toleration. And Madison speaks up and says, no, it's not toleration because toleration implies that the government is allowing you to do something. Everybody has a fundamental right to religious liberty. And that transformation was a major one. That's something that Paine and Washington and others remark upon in their letters, that the change from toleration to liberty is a deep philosophical fundamental change that's going on simultaneously with the Declaration of Independence. Well, you know, will that lead to a flourishing society or will people then fall into warring with each other? That debate then goes on for another six or seven years in Virginia, where Jefferson's bill for religious freedom takes a decade to get passed because of the opposition of people like Patrick Henry who say, well, you have to force people to support churches because if you don't, then you'll have immorality and society will collapse. And Madison and his allies, who are principally Baptists, as you said, because they were the persecuted minority in Virginia, are standing up and saying, no, we have a right to freedom of conscience. 
And that tension actually never really gets resolved during the lifetimes of the people who are in 1776. They, that it's for the next generation to resolve that that question well, if, if it's been resolved if it's been resolved at all yeah, yeah. but it, it, and there's this way in which the movie i think goes to in the in broader terms the movie i think is a very radical film um in the sense in its interpretation of what's happening in 1776 as opposed to i think a common portrayal of what happened at the declaration uh because of things like the 1619 project and so on which which emphasizes the conservativeness of the declaration so th- this this movie plays up i think the liberatory potential you know it notes that the slavery uh section gets cut out in in that you know banger of a song but it 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 kind of teases the possibility emphasizes that you know there's an there was an almost not yet aspect uh, abolitionist aspect if you will to the to the declaration um and on you know in terms of the soldier and it, it has kind of an anti-war motif the soldier song and a number of other points it is a relatively radical portrayal of the possibility of liberty, the seed of liberty that gets planted in the Declaration, which, again, goes contrary to a lot of the current interpretation, which says instead, no, the, the Declaration and later the Constitution are pro-slavery documents. They are uh, about protecting the property of wealthy landowners. It's, it is a, um, it's actually anti radical. It is a conservative document, a conservative moment. So one of the things I like about this film is that it recaptures the this idea. I mean, you mentioned Empire of Liberty, the title of Gordon Wood's book about the early republic. It, it captures that sense of possibility and, and real liberty that gets enshrined in the Declaration and in the Constitution. Thanks for listening. As always, the best way to keep in touch with us and get more Pop and Lock content is to follow us on Twitter. You can find us at the handle at Pop and Lock Pod. That's Pop, the letter N, Lock with an E, like the philosopher, Pod. Make sure to follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. We look forward to unraveling your favorite show or movie next time. <laughs>